Hey, welcome to the Night Church Podcast. My name is Philip, and I am so excited for what you're about to listen to. These are sermons and presentations by young adults and for young adults. If you're visiting in the area, we hope that you join us for Night Church on Friday nights. Or if you're a regular here in Loma Linda, I hope that you'll share this sermon with someone that you love and care about. Now, for the sermon. I thought there would be a cool bumper video to really just give me 10 more seconds. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. I'll just have to start my workout app for the preaching here to get my calories for the rest of the day. Carl's always congratulating me when I hit my, my goals, so I want to do him proud. Um, yeah, we're in week two of our sermon series on New Testament characters of the Bible. Last week, Pastor Phil talked about Peter. Any of, you, any of you guys not here? Yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay, you can see it on YouTube. You can listen to it on Spotify. Or put your watch, your Apple Watch on the fitness app for preaching, and then you'll get your workout in by listening to it. It's a bit stressful. Just kidding. It was good. It was good. I would like to start by stating that this, this series has been, it's been fun to prepare for. I'm excited for what the other elders are going to share. Next week, David Zarka is, pre- uh, is preaching. And, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to change everything around my schedule so I can be here instead of uh, anywhere else. So if you want to be here next week, I'd love to hear alongside with you. We're going to begin here with Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 31. Some of you here are not going to be able to see the screen behind me. I apologize. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Before he could finish, the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Amen. Amen. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when a son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What do you think the most popular parable in the Bible is? <coughs> it's not this one. It's the Good Samaritan. But I thought it was this, and so I was kind of hoping it would be that. But this comes a close second, don't you think? This is very popular, and we were very endeared to the idea of the son that ran away. Most of the sermons are shared on that. And then uh, more recently, a desire, uh, an author who passed away recently uh, shares a book about the older brother. And that got me thinking. And over the past couple of years, I've been just diving in on the, the role of the older brother. So the story begins by sharing with us a vignette of a life and culture that we don't fully understand and yet seem to be drawn to. It has the makings of a triangle situation. Now, I'm not going to say this well, but I remember Madeline came home a few months ago and she was like, let me tell you about triangle relationships. They're all related to each other. And one, like each is affecting the other. And yeah, she drew, she drew a, a diagram. And uh, I realized why I had failed geometry in high school because... I still didn't understand what she was sharing. <laughs> I expected a cosine somewhere in there. But what I, was, what, what I was seeing here in the triangle situation is a father and two sons, each one affecting each other and their emotions affected by the other. This requires a little bit of insight into each character to, un to understand how the other might feel. And like I said, there's so much shared about the younger part, I mean the younger son, and the father's part of the story too. But I'm going to tell the story from the older brother's part. And I'm going to tell it from my perspective, because clearly only three verses were given to the older brother. So, act one. About a year ago, my father called me into his office, and I obliged. I showed up, and as I opened the door, I saw that my brother was there. I was a bit confused, because, I mean, my brother is a bit lazy. I'm the hardworking one in the family. And yet there he was. But I don't remember much more because I remember freezing when I heard my brother explaining to my father that it was time for him to receive the inheritance. Now, you got to understand, no one gets an inheritance. No one gets the trust in our family until there's a death in the family. And so me... I wanted to fight my brother. Like, dad's alive. As, I mean, as far as I knew, there was no cancer. There was nothing going on. And my brother's just here telling my father, I'd like the inheritance, please. I do remember my, my dad just kind of pausing and then saying, yeah, here you go. Here, I'm going to give you my inheritance or the inheritance that belongs to you. Now, in our family culture, and actually in Jewish culture, I was reading that the eldest gets two-thirds and the youngest gets one-third. I wonder what happens when you have three. Like I said, I don't do well in geometry. <laughs> Just kidding, that's fractions. 
But <laughs> but in this case, the eldest is getting two-thirds and the youngest one-third. And my brother got that one-third. About a week later, my brother gets up and leaves. I just go into his room, and I see that he's just kind of left most things behind. Um, but I know he's gone. And I saw my father's face every day as he kind of looked out the kitchen window, looking at the driveway, seeing if my brother would come back. After a few months, I mean, he got the inheritance. What, what else does he need from my father? He's dead to him. <sighs> Anyways, about six months ago, I was on social media, and I saw my brother on there. He was in Abu Dhabi. He was hosting a big party, and he was just like, being very generous. I mean, he, I just, in the video, it was kind of blurry. He was like, drinks are, on, drinks are on me. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's half the money. And, uh, you know, I was pretty mad. Still followed him with uh, my alt account. And uh, I just kind of saw some things going on. That was six months ago. About three months ago, he went silent. Nothing showed up. Nothing was there. I didn't tell my dad. I mean, I kind of wanted to, but other people did. I mean, in this community, everything spreads, right? The drama, everything. Everyone's like, yo, you know what your son's doing? He's doing this. He's doing that. He's a, a prodigal. Not a good word to do. Not a good word to attribute to someone, right? He's just being, in, in, in the way I had read that prodigal means, like, a bit too generous. Like, you're giving everything in, a, in an unwise way. About a week ago, I arrived, I, I drove home, and as I'm nearing the house, I saw a bunch of cars, and I was very confused. Did something happen to my family? I mean, everyone was kind of, I saw people walking into my house, and I was like, there's no ambulance, there's no fire truck, no one's dead, what is going on? I'm not in the loop. And so I kind of get a guess, I see a guest that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm like, hey, what's happening? And he was like, your brother's back. He's returned, and we're throwing him a party. Oh, man, I was livid. Because what you don't know is that it's been a year, and my father looked out that window every single day. Every single day. So I was mad. The guy's like, I'll see you inside. And in my head, I was like, I'm not stepping in there. I mean, my brother treated my dad as dead to him, took that inheritance, and my dad just took him back? I mean, I've been here the whole time. I've been slaving away for my father. I was the son that stayed in there. I deserve whatever celebration is going on there because I never got that. All I got was Little Caesar's Pizza in eighth grade, which I actually did. <laughs> my father came out, and he just kind of entreated to me. He was like, look. Your son was gone. He's back. That's all that matters. He's back. And I couldn't understand that. That's the version of the Bible that I read for the brother. I wonder how Abu Dhabi was 2,000 years ago. The brother we see is full of self-righteousness. And I'll share a little bit about that later. But he's strongly convinced that he did right. Kenneth Bailey, a prolific author and lecturer in Middle Eastern New Testament studies, spent more than four decades in Egypt, Lebanon, Israel, and Cyprus, and Palestine, 
When asking native residents of each country about this parable, he received cultural references to how the older brother can be. And I've summarized a few here. One, where the younger brother has refused partnership in the land with the father, the older has also refused. His request of the father has been the same as the earlier request of the brother. The younger brother said, I want mine. The older brother also says that. The older brother wants his portion. After all, he said, you didn't even let me have that goat. Or I felt like I couldn't even ask for that goat. The older son has had his portion. It is the lack of unrestricted authority over it that he resents. The older brother catches himself in an unsuspecting trap. He says that the younger brother devoured your living with harlots. Thereby, he refuses to acknowledge that the portion given by the father to the son was really the son's, the prodigal son's, to do with as he pleased. He saw all that money in Abu Dhabi, and he was like, that's my dad's money that he's throwing away. Yet in the same breath, here, in the same breath, the older brother is whining that he does not have the full freedom to do what he wants with his portion. Third, he understands his relationship to his father as that of a servant before his master. He says that in verse 29, all these years I have served you. And like a servant, he begins demanding his rights. He, the hard worker, doesn't even get a goat and his lazy brother gets a cow. Much more a wild experience far away. For all the faults of the younger sand, the reality sits that the younger knew his father. In the earlier verses, when the younger is right there trying to eat the pods with the pigs, trying to have just that filth, he realizes, my father treats his servants, his hired servants, better than me. Therefore, let me go back to be a, a hired servant. When he shows up, he says, Father, I have sinned. That entire tam time, even though the younger son left, he knew his sonship and his, his, his status with the father. Even though he was trying to come in as a hired worker, trying to work his way back into where things are, before the father just cuts him off and gives, shows him the compassion and love and the grace, the son is coming to the father saying, Father. Whereas we're seeing the older son saying, I slaved for you. I was your servant. And that was interesting. Because early on, I, I was kind of, in, kind of endeared to the older brother. I come from a... Most of us come from a style of Christianity that is, uh, it's so easy to start looking at the works or the good things that we do and then kind of look at the others around us and then we, we say we don't judge. We start slowly but surely, we start just pointing things out. Hey, I hope you've really enjoyed the first part of this sermon. These sort of productions do require some financial giving, and so if you'd like to take part in reaching more young adults across North America and even the world, would you consider giving on praxisministry.org? And there you can sign up and select Praxis Young Adults to be part of our giving campaign. Hope you enjoy the rest of this sermon. And yet here we're seeing the younger son 
knowing his position with the father and not the eldest. And four, the fourth thing that Bailey says is that the older son needs to be forgiven by his father, father and his brother. But by staying out of the party, he signals that there is a separation. Where it was the last, where it was last the younger brother that had created the schism, the break in harmony, that chasm, the older brother has inadvertently stepped in and continued that break in that triangle. That was the other shocking thing that I realized here, that at the end of the day, we had someone that replaced the other. And I wonder how many times we're doing that in our relationships. Verse 32, the father says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. I like to think of the situation applying to the brother when he accepts re reconciliation about a week later. I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking positively. I'm hoping that, uh, imagine a week later, everyone is celebrating the older brother now being alive because he too was lost and is found. He realizes that the whole time the daddy had was not a master, but the father he, that he needed all along. We don't know that story. But somehow it seems a little bit more difficult to imagine that type of reconciliation than the type of reconciliation of the wild brother, the one that we've grown up and we're used to. You can also see how the older brother is a self-righteous, sorry, you can see that as self-righteous and as right as he is, he's always felt like he cannot reach the promise of inheritance promised to him. He didn't even understand that the father was willing to provide whatever he wanted. You hear that? He didn't understand that the father was willing to provide whatever he wanted and or needed. The son only understood about his father through the community around him. He saw the fathers around him, what he was told, what he experienced. The father might have been telling him and tell sharing about his love to him revealing it to him, but the community was like, this is how we run things. This is how it goes. In the study, a uh, little shameless plug, tomorrow morning at 9, sorry, 10 a.m., we'll be actually breaking this down a little bit more, and I'll share some really cool facts in the Sabbath school that I learned about this Middle Eastern culture that really applies to this parable and had been shared in here. But we'll see just how each one was so much more important and in ways that we would not understand here. Anyways, our Loma Linda community can easily fall into this self-righteousness of the older brother. Think about it. We live in a community renowned for longevity. I mean, have you been on campus and someone's kind of lost and they're like, where do I find the blue zone? <laughs> that happened. I, that happened. There was a guy from Australia and he was like, I need to find your, like, the center that talks about the blue zones. And I was like, man, no one has really, like, made money off of this. Like, could we have just a, a blue zone cafe or whatnot? We, we live in a community filled with professionals in healthcare. We have a bunch of retired pastors out here. I mean, we could be saved simply by the presence of pastors around here, right? They've seen it all. They've been everywhere. There's so many retirees that have spent years in the mission field here. And yet the church here 
Loma Linda University Church realized several months ago that people aren't understand uh, that not, not understanding. They realized through an anonymous post that there is still a hesitation present in this community to really accept the simplicity and the frankness of the inheritance that we have in Jesus. It was evidenced by things shown on the screen as Pastor Randy, our senior pastor, started reading and seeing alongside the audience that people weren't sure of their salvation. They weren't sure this community. We weren't sure of our salvation. We weren't sure if we were saved, if we were loved or not. We weren't sure if it was all worth it. And that honesty led to a different sermon series that, that talked about that. It really seems like the elder brother is living life without a full understanding of that same inheritance. I mean, we can view this as in the same way that Jesus was viewing it. Jesus was kind of pairing the story to the Pharisees that were like, oh my goodness, this man eats and drinks with sinners. But we're realizing, at least I'm realizing, that I'm here. And I've been here. Not fully understanding the inheritance I have in Jesus Christ. Do we just seem to walk around earth knowing that we have that inheritance of salvation and not just fully grasping it? How would we act differently? You see, the message from Jesus to us today is a simple call of reconciliation. It is Jesus entreating to us that he is willing to provide whatever we need. In our temptation to view that inheritance and that reconciliation and to think to ourselves, I must be better in order to receive it, continues persisting. It's something that I just feel like I need to do something else about it. I tell you today, you are better because you receive that inheritance and because you have received it. And by receiving that inheritance, you have opened the heart to true righteousness given to you by Jesus. At the end of the day, it seems like the one who was righteous was the younger brother at the end of the story. That younger brother is the one that accepted that invitation by the father. That younger brother was the one that's elevated and celebrated for and not the older brother. For, for some reason, the topic of faith has seemed a bit elusive over many years. I always thought that Hebrews 11 was pretty cool. By faith, this person did this, and because of that, this happened. By faith, this happened, and this happened. It wasn't until a few months ago that I realized faith was simply believing. And then I just kind of kept it that, at that. I believe Jesus Christ, therefore I have faith. And that making it that making that situation and that concept a little bit more simple to me has allowed me to even accept more of what God has to give. Not thinking, oh, I must grow my faith. And it's more like, I must grow belief. I believe every single time. When things are going hard, I believe. It's not, mm, did I have enough faith for this? Romans 1.17 didn't reveal itself to me actually until this afternoon. And uh, I got a bit giddy when I read this. Here's the verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You know, I always looked at this verse, and I thought I understood it, but I read it in my own, 
I read that my own righteous works will lead me to faith. But here it says, my faith leads to righteousness. And then I was like, yes, my faith leads to righteousness. But then I realized, me being just prone to self-righteousness, prone to trying to see what I can do, my next word was leads. And then I realized, this is immediate. What happened with the son to the father was immediate. The righteousness that the father gives to us is immediate. That process, that leading to, is immediate. It's not like, okay, we're going to start here and we're going to end up in Anaheim. And that leading process, this, the, the righteousness is over there. No, my faith immediately is giving us righteousness. Thank Jesus for that. Philip Yancey, one of the best-selling contemporary Christian authors and someone who our senior pastor, Randy, admires so much. He's even come here. Shared a story in an issue of the magazine Christianity Today in 1983. Imagine me just digging through the records to find this magazine. You'll appreciate it a little bit more. <laughs> just kidding. Google. <laughs> Philip says this, this in his own words. I attended a unique church recently, one that exists without a denominational headquarters or paid staff, and yet attracts millions of committed members. Its name is Alcoholics Anonymous. A friend had invited me during a poignant conversation in which he confessed his problem to me. To me. I'd like you to come with me, he said, and I think you'll get a glimpse of what the early church must have been like. When I pressed him for details, he simply smiled and said, come, you'll see. At 12 o'clock on a Monday, I entered a ramshackle house that had been used for six other sessions already that day. Acrid clouds of cigarette smoke hung like tear gas in the air. I soon sensed what my friend had meant in comparing AA to the early church. A well-known politician and several millionaires were mixing freely with unemployed dropouts and dazed-looking kids who wore band-aids co to cover needle marks in their arms. The group conveyed obvious warmth, and conversations tended to be intimate and intense. Alcoholics can expertly cut through facade of polite aloofness or feigned strength. When we went around and introduced ourselves, it went like this. Hi, I'm Tom, and I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Instantly, everyone shouted in unison like, unison like a Greek chorus. Hi, Tom. Then Tom and each person there shared a personal progress report on their battle with addiction. For many, these fellow members are the only people in the world who treat them with care and respect, and even a ritual can have profound meaning. For my friend, immersion in AA has meant salvation in the most literal sense. He knows that one slip could, no will, send him to an earthly death. AA members have responded to its, his calls at 4 a.m., finding him in the eerie brightness of, an all, of all night restaurants where he has been sitting for hours at a formica table filling a notebook with a sentence, God help me make it through the next five minutes. Now he's approaching the one-year anniversary of his last drink, an important milestone by AA standards. And looking with a curious observer's eye at the local church, we see that this new church rests a little bit different in the life of this friend, Tom. Meanwhile, Philip Yancey says that he stands inside the local church and looks on with a curious observer's eye at 
Alcoholics Anonymous and wonders why instead AA met his needs when the local church did not. He had attended a progressive church that offered a similar climate to that found in AA. There too, millionaires mixed with dropouts and members offered acceptance, not judgment. Why was it not enough? I asked him to, to name the one quality missing in the local church that was somehow provided by AA. He stared at his cup of coffee for a long time. Then he softly said one word, dependency. None of us can make it on our own. Isn't that why Jesus came, he explained. Yet most people in the church give off a self-satisfied air of piety or superiority. Some even just feel self-righteous. I don't sense them consciously leaning on God or each other. An alcoholic who goes to church feels inferior and incomplete. He sat in silence for a while, then a smile began to crease his face. It's a funny thing, he said at last. What I hate more, most about myself, my alcoholism, was the one thing God used to bring me back to him. Because of it, I know I can't survive without him. Maybe God is calling us alcoholics to teach the saints what it means to be dependent on him and his community on earth. Saints in this audience, alcoholics in this audience, what is our dependency situation like? Where's our righteousness coming from? Ourselves? Jesus? That changes everything. About a year ago, I gave a challenge in my last sermon. I only preach here once a year. That's my contract. But I gave a sermon and a challenge for everyone to be authentic. And I said that I was struggling with things. Thank God we're at a different stage. New things to struggle with. But the authenticity that I have experienced since then has been great. Keep it up. Authenticity is important. But I'm seeing here that in this community of academics, those in academia, and those who have seen the light and not chosen to go in academia, we can lull ourselves into a thought of, de of dependency on ourselves on our knowledge, I can lull myself, we can lull ourselves into dependencies in ways like, I don't know, someone using ChatGPT to write their sermon. Not me, not me. <laughs> I did find an author that helped me, but that was a different story. Jesus offers himself as someone for you to grasp every single time. And no matter how good you get at this thing called Christianity, it's never even remotely good unless there's that dependency. And you know what's even better? Is that dependency towards each other. And so my comment to you this year is this. Each one of you, no matter how good, how bad you feel, can count on me for whatever is needed. 4 a.m. in the morning, if somehow you can get past my do not disturb, just call twice. I answer. Anyone here, from the elders to the leaders, from the people doing announcements, the calling is to be codependent and to collectively come to the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much 
life with you, life being dependent on you is amazing. And I'm, I'm saddened to know that I sometimes don't realize that. I know this week, God, it took me standing outside the school of dentistry with my diploma in hand, breaking out in tears, knowing that it was you. That dependency on you is really what helped me get along. And it was so beautiful to praise and sing praises to you afterwards. God, this community, it's great. It's loving, it's accepting. And yet, like that alcoholic said, we still need that dependence on you. May we carry that burden and that torch, knowing that it's so light when we carry it with you. Because at the end of the day, I'm not carrying anything. I'm just on your shoulders. Amen. Hey, I'm so glad that you listened to the Night Church podcast sermon today. I know that God is going to do great things in your life. Whatever you felt and heard from the Lord through this sermon, I hope that you would share this with someone that you love and care about and that you would consider even joining us one Friday evening. Blessings to you and hope you get to listen to the next one coming up soon.